So we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 5 to 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather return to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, it might surprise you to know that there's many products that we use every day that are used for purposes that are outside of their intended purpose. For example, uh, super glue apparently was originally used as an adhesive to close up wounds. Bubble wrap was created as a fancy type of wallpaper. Play-Doh was created to clean, uh, clean wallpaper because you couldn't get it wet, so they would put the Play-Doh on the wallpaper. Uh, WD-40 was created as a rust preventative rather than as a general lubricant. Uh, Kleenex was used not for the purpose we use it for. It was actually used uh, to apply uh, cream to the face. Um, Listerine. It was created in 1888. It was used for a number of different purposes. It was used as a surgical antiseptic, as a cure for gonorrhea, as for sweaty feet and soft corns developing between the toes. It was used as a cigarette additive, cure for the common cold, and as a dandruff treatment. It wasn't until the 1920s that it became used as a mouthwash, which we use it today. The slinky, it was created to stabilize devices on the open sea. Uh, you know, the pocket that you have in your jeans, a little tiny pocket like I have here, uh, that pocket was actually designed for a pocket watch. We don't use it for that uh, today. When text messages originally were invented, uh, text messages were invented so that carriers could send information to their customers. It wasn't for people to send information back and forth. And then when it started to catch on, uh, carriers didn't even know how to charge for text messaging because they had no idea that people would actually want to text message back and forth. So there's a lot of items that are used for different purposes than, the, than they were originally intended. And then there's some products that are misused. Uh, like, for example, a few weeks ago, I went to the store, I was getting whipped cream for the coffee bar, and uh, I was in the self-checkout, and as I was scanned that item, this alert comes on the screen that says, you know, to the cashier, make sure that this person is over 18. I'm thinking, that's weird. Like, why do you need to check for whipped cream? Uh, apparently, people can get high on the nitrous oxide that's in the whipped cream. Um, and there's lots of products like that. Uh, according to a rehab organization called Narconon, there are at least 1,400 products that can be misused, including whiteout, computer dusters, white house, whiteboard cleaners, permanent markers, dry erase markers, rubber cement, spray adhesive, degreasers, air fresheners, spot removers, dry cleaning fluids, oven cleaner, furniture wax, dusting spray, shoe polish spray, disinfectants, leather cleaner, rust removers, and so much more. Many things can be used, mis misused. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul makes this profound statement. He says, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. We are not ignorant of Satan's designs or Satan's schemes. Now, we have some 
need to know some background information to know exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now, he talks about one person who has kind of grieved the community, and apparently there was one individual in the church of Corinth who kind of was the ringleader of the rebellion against Paul. And so he riled everybody up to turn against Paul, and uh, this, Paul says, it harmed not just Paul, it wasn't just an affront to Paul, it kind of harmed the whole community. And so as a result, the community exercised church discipline against this person. And most likely what happened was this person was excommunicated from the fellowship of the church. Now in our day and age, excommunication or church discipline is not quite as significant as it was back then. You know, if, if someone was kicked out of one church, they could just go to another church. But in that day and age, this was really severe. It was like if he was kicked out of the church, he was kicked out of the church. He couldn't go and kind of fellowship with any other believers. And there was a purpose in this. It wasn't, you know, just to, to be nasty or to, to be severe. It was so that he would kind of come to his sentence, senses and repent and then be brought back into the community. So he's kicked out of the church for a time, and it achieves its intended purpose. He repents. He changes. He's, he realizes he was wrong in, in opposing Paul and, and the teachings of Paul. And so then after that, the temptation of the church is, let's just keep him estranged. I mean, he's done all of these terrible things. He's been rebellious. He's said all these terrible things against Paul. Let's just keep him at arm's length. And Paul says that that's not the intention. Like, you need to love him. You need to show him grace. He's repented. He realizes he's wrong. And you need to bring him back into the fold. And the reason that he says that he, they need to do, that, do this is because Satan wants to use something that was meant for good and turn it into something that's evil. See, God intended and the church and Paul intended for this person to be separated from the church for just a time so that he would come to his senses and then bring, be brought back into the fellowship. But Satan wants to use that to keep the church apart so that the church would be defrauded of this member, that he wouldn't be a member of the church, and so that the church would hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. And as we look at this passage, I think this is kind of a paradigm for kind of the schemes of Satan. That's what Satan tries to do. To do. He takes uh, things that are good and tries to turn them into evil. In essence, what he does is misuses the things of God. And so today I'd like to kind of look at kind of the schemes of the enemy. And as we look at kind of the schemes of the enemy, I hope to kind of illuminate them so that we can dispower, to disarm the, the weapons of the enemy. Let's say I turned all the lights off in the sanctuary. All the curtains. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Let's say we turned, put all the, the shades down, removed all the artificial lights. Can you do that, Paul? <laughs> Not quite. But if say you did that and it was pitch black in here. And I said, there's a snake in this room, a poisonous snake that just getting bit one time could kill you on the spot. You'd probably be pretty terrified. I mean, if you happen to brush against a chair, you'd be startled, think that it's getting you. But imagine I turned the lights back on and you saw and that snake was in a cage on the stage with a big padlock on the top you probably wouldn't be so scared anymore because it's safe. I mean, it's in the cage, and unless you go and stick your hand in the cage, you're not going to get bit. And I think in the same way, if we can illuminate the schemes of the enemy, then we can avoid them 
and not by, be bit by his schemes. So I think there's, as we look at this paradigm of, of Satan misusing the things of God, turning good things into evil things, I think there's four ways that he often does that, and, and perhaps even more, but the four ways that I thought of. And the first way is misusing power and authority. God distributes power and authority to people so that those in power might serve those who are weak, those who are less fortunate. He entrusts those with power to serve and protect those who are weak. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God institutes authority in order that the strong would serve and protect the weak, but Satan comes and he tries to subvert that. He comes to those who have power and says, hey, you have this power, you have this authority over people. You can get people to do what you want. And you should get them to do what you want for your own benefit. Power has the ability to corrupt. In the early 1970s, a psychologist did a study. Uh, His name was David uh, Kipnis. And he wanted to know if power really does corrupt people. And so he created this kind of fictitious environment where there were managers. And uh, the managers, some of the managers had a lot of authority. Some of the managers didn't have so much authority. And then they kind of observed how they interacted. The bosses who, were more, who had more power tended to use coercive or strong tactics, criticizing employees, making demands, displaying anger. They were dismissive of employees' performance, tended to credit themselves for their employees' success. They were also tended to keep a distance between themselves and their employees. And that's just kind of in an artificial environment where they're One is given more power than the other. Another study, similar study, was replicated in 2012 with the game Monopoly. And some people were given uh, lots and lots of money and two dices, die, and the other person was giving much less money and one die. And then they just kind of observed how they interacted. And the person who had more money tended to, to kind of have more aggressive behaviors. They started to kind of lean over the table a little bit more. As they moved their pieces, they made a little bit more noise. Uh, They took liberties with the other pieces. They would sometimes move the opponent's piece. This power dynamic that was just artificial and random, it caused people to act in ways that were aggressive and not appropriate. Power has that ability. And while God created authority and given authority to certain people so that they would serve the common good, Satan comes and tries to subvert that. So many of us are in some level of authority. You know, maybe it's not a super high level of authority, but some of us maybe we're managers, maybe we're supervisors, uh, maybe we're coaches, maybe we're parents. And if that's the case, we've been given a responsibility to serve those who are under our care, to seek their good, to seek their, their welfare. That's why God gave us that opportunity, gave that us, us that authority. So that's the first way, the first thing that Satan tries to get us to misuse. The second thing is he tries us to get us to misuse gifts or wealth. As we look at the scripture, God gives 
gifts or wealth to people for one reason, so that we might be a blessing to those around us. Look at what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The purpose of blessing Abraham is so that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's not just so you would enjoy your stuff, enjoy your kingdom. It's so that you would be the conduit through which I bless those around you. And that's why God gives us gifts and possessions and opportunities so that we can use them to further God's kingdom. And Satan, what he does is he comes along, he takes those good things that God gives us, and he, he tries to get us to focus only on the gift. Sometimes he tries to get us to worship the gift rather than the giver. Sometimes he comes to us and says, you deserve it. These gifts, they're not really gifts. They're something that you earned. And he turns that around. Satan says, you don't know what the future holds. You need to kind of hold on to everything that you have because you don't know what the future holds. You just need to have it, hold on to it, and enjoy it. Now, God gives us gifts to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy the gifts of God. And in fact, sometimes it can be disobedient in the sense to not enjoy and be grateful for the blessings he's given us. But let's not forget, he's given us those opportunities to be a conduit to those around us. It's not just for ourselves, it's for everyone else as well. Now, some of us might think to ourselves, well, I don't have a lot to, to offer. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of opportunities. I don't have a, a lot of resources. But it's not about how much you have. It's about the state of your heart. There's a pastor by the name of uh, Justin Borger, and he wrote a book called God So Loved that he gave. And uh, he shares a story about a hum homeless woman that he encountered uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he was pastoring. And uh, this woman came to his church and uh, was really in, in dire straits, had some needs. And so he kind of helped her with some food and just kind of some bare necessities. He didn't hear from her for several weeks. And then she, she called him up and told, told him that she had been raped on the streets. And uh, he came and he took her to the hospital. And uh, he went and got her some vouchers so she could get some food. But there was a problem that he saw. She kept giving those vouchers away to other people. And so he confronted her about it, and it's like, she said, well, we're trying to help you, and we're giving you these vouchers so that you could have food. Now, you're not going to have enough if you just keep giving it away. But see, the thing is, she lived under a bridge with a number of other homeless people, and she couldn't just keep it for herself. And she said something to Borger that just really stuck with him and was just kind of convicting. She said this, why can't I give some? I mean, you think someone has no home, no food, and yet has that heart to give. Satan would say, hold on to it. Keep it for yourself. You don't know when the next meal is coming. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. Just enjoy what you have. Hold on to what you have with all your heart. And so Satan would have us misuse the gifts of God. He'd also have us misuse people. God created all of us. Male and female in his image created us to live in relationship with himself and with one another. And uh, he created us to find joy in one another's company, to support one another. And yet we live in a world where there are a lot of people, there are a lot of problems caused by people. And uh, so what Satan often does is he comes to us and he tells us, you don't need other people. If you allow people into your life, you're going to be hurt. You're going to experience more problems than it's worth. 
And Satan comes and he tells us that. And he, he tells us those lies. And uh, one writer named Francis Broster suggests that sometimes what we do is we replace people with stuff. In the writing Scientific America, he says this, uh, material things don't just fill basic emotional needs. In fact, our possessions do not just make us feel secure by substituting for important people in our lives. We actually see these object, objects as an extension of ourselves. We perhaps act as if we believe, or we believe, that in some ways our very essence permeates our things. If these things become damaged or lost, we ourselves become damaged or lost. People can and do let us down, but not things. That worn sweatshirt is not human. It does not show us compassion. Neither does a teddy bear or a coffee mug. But scientists point out these objects are utterly reliable, always present and under our control. We can count on them. According to present, uh, Professor Ian Norris, other people are an extension of our self-concept. When those relationships are unstable or unfulfilling, people may lack the connection they need and attach meaning to products that fill the void. There's been an enormous amount of research on the widespread problem with hoarding. One of the main factors is the presence of disorders such as depression and anxiety, which make people emotionally vulnerable. Hoarding sufferers use their belongings to safeguard their identity, to soothe their fears, and to build fortresses to make them feel more secure. So Satan tries to get us to believe that other people aren't important, that we don't need other people in our life. And the truth is, it's safe not to have other people around us. It's safe to keep people at arm's length. But if we do that, we're not going to experience God's best for us. We're not going to experience the joy of having deep, satisfying relationships with others. So that's the first way that God or that Satan often tries us to get us to misuse people. The second way uh, is that he tries to get us to believe that other people exist for our benefit. Other people are simply means to our own end, to our own gain. And this can manifest itself in many different forms. It can manifest itself in pornography, in lying, in defrauding, taking advantage of others. Uh, it can even manifest itself in more subtle ways, just taking pleasure in this downfall of others, comparing ourselves to others, trying to build ourselves up. And we see other people as competition, not as brothers and sisters in Christ to try to build up. And so we see them in that way when Satan gets a hold of our minds and he tries to get us to believe those other people, they're just a means to an end. So Satan tries to get us to misuse people. Finally, he tries to get us to misuse time. And he does that in two primary ways. The first way is he tries to get us to believe you have tomorrow. You have tomorrow to figure everything out. He says, tomorrow you can worry about honoring God. Tomorrow you can worry about loving your spouse, loving the person around you. Tomorrow you can share your faith. And what often happens is tomorrow turns into never. I mean, how, how many times have you know, we said, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go on a diet. And then it's like, tomorrow turns into tomorrow. That turns into tomorrow. And we always think that we have something in the future. We always think we have tomorrow. And often that tomorrow turns into never. God has given us today. He's given us this opportunity, this moment to please the Lord. James 4, 13 to 15 says this, Come now, you who would say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Satan tells us, serve Christ tomorrow. Make good choices tomorrow. Jesus says, follow me now. Follow me today. Follow me tomorrow. Follow me forever. That's the first way he gets us to misuse time. The second way is that he causes us to worry about tomorrow. Luke 12, 22 to 26 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor grain, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then... Uh, you are not able to do as small of a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Worrying is a misuse of time uh, because when we're worrying about things, then we're not serving God and delighting in Him. And Satan uses that to throw us off track. And the thing we forget, and I'll put myself at the front of the line, the thing that we often forget is God has given us grace for today. He's given, what we need, given us what we need today. He hasn't given us the grace for tomorrow yet because tomorrow hasn't come. And so whatever comes, he's going to give us grace for that moment. And so if we're trying to figure out the future and are worrying about the future, we can't handle that because he's only given us grace for today. As believers, we need to trust that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that he loves us, he cares about us. Corey Ten Boone struggled with worry. And uh, she shares a story that someone told her. One of her friends told her this. When I worry, I go to the mirror and I say to myself, this tremendous thing which is worrying me is beyond a solution. It's especially too hard for Jesus Christ to handle. After I've said that, I smile and I'm ashamed. We never say something like that with our lips, but our hearts sometimes that's what we Satan would have us misuse our time by worrying about tomorrow, thinking that we have today. Satan takes everything that's good, tries to turn it into evil, which causes us to misuse all the things that God has given us. Misuse the power and authority that's meant to protect and serve the weak and vulnerable. Cause us to misuse the gifts that God has given us, gifts that he's given us both to enjoy but also to be a blessing to those around us. Cause us to misuse the relationship which we have, people. Relationships that are meant to enrich us, that we're meant to grow together. It causes us to either avoid people or use people for our own benefit. It causes us to misuse time. And if we fix our eyes on Satan, if we focus on those things, we're going to end up down a lonely, dark, empty road. And yet Jesus, the good shepherd, has a good plan for us. Jesus does the opposite. He takes what's evil and makes it into good. He takes what the world looks at as the, the worst tragedy and he turns it into something good and something beautiful. Jesus can take anything in our lives and turn it around and transform us. Say, uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one who cares for his sheep, who gives up his life for his sheep. He wants us to have the heart of the psalmist who said in the, Lord, in the uh, 
23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, and they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our good shepherd. That's what Christ would have us focus on, the fact that he is a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Satan would change that. Satan would subvert that, and he would remove the shepherd. And if you remove the shepherd, here's what's left. If you remove the shepherd and all the things the shepherd does, here's what you have in verse 1. You have me. I shall be in want. In verse 2, you remove the shepherd, you have me. Me. Verse 3, you have my soul. Me. Verse 4, you have, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear. Me. Me. Verse 5, you have me in the presence of my enemies. My head. My cup. In verse 6, you have me all the days of my life. I will dwell. When you take away the good shepherd, there's not much left. Paul Miller comments on this. He says this, we're left obsessing over our wants in the valley of the shadow of death, paralyzed by fear in the presence of our enemies. No wonder so many are so cynical. Both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't allow the enemy to win. We can't allow him to cause us to misuse the things that God has given us. Let's look to the good shepherd. So as Paul says, that we would not be outwitted by Satan and that we would not be ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are victorious over the forces of evil. We thank you that you are a good and perfect heavenly father. That while Satan takes things that are good and turns them into evil, you take things that are evil and turn them into good that we have the promise that you are a good, perfect, heavenly Father who's working all things for our good and for your glory, that you won't allow anything in our life that ultimately is going to put a stain on our souls. We thank you for your love and care for us. Help us to look to you as the good shepherd. Help us not to buy into the schemes of the enemy who would seek to subvert the good things that you've done for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for always being there for us. In 